All right, so we have been talking for the, uh, the past few weeks about ecclesiology, which is what? The study of the church, the doctrine of the church from the, uh, the Greek word ekklesia, which means congregation or gathering or assembly or church. And so uh, as we're talking about ecclesiology, we've been talking about what is the church, um, you know, why does the church exist, how is the church kind of uh, arranged in regards to relationship with other churches, how is a church internally arranged in regards to elders and deacons and those kinds of things. Uh, we've talked about church discipline, we've talked about the sacraments or the ordinances, and this week we want to talk about church membership. So we'll talk about church membership today. I want to begin with the definition. You should have it on your sheets there. Uh, this is from a, a guy named Jonathan Lehman, who's written a couple of really good books on church membership. And, uh, and he says this, that church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian, characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. I think that's a pretty good uh, definition, and so I'd encourage you, as we're talking through membership, if you have presuppositions or preconceived notions about what membership is and is not, uh, to kind of uh, remember, bear in mind this definition, that it's a formal relationship between a church and a Christian in which that church is saying, we formally commit to discipling you, and the Christian saying, I formally submit my discipleship into the care of this church. Noticing you're not committing yourself to the elders, necessarily you're committing yourself to the church. And, uh, and so that is church membership. So three things that we want to talk about this morning as it relates to church membership. The first one being church membership is biblical. The second one, church membership is beneficial. And the third one, that church membership is a burden. I wish there was a better way to say it, but I like alliteration, and, uh, and so I chose, I was gonna go with burdensome, but that has a little bit uh, more derogatory connotations than I wanted. So let's begin with church membership is biblical. And I'm fighting a little bit of a sinus infection, so excuse me if I'm coughing a little bit. So church membership is biblical. I want to begin, as we're beginning, I want to kind of uh, make sure you understand what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I want, to, I want to make it very clear from the beginning. I'm not saying, we're not saying that all believers everywhere must go through some sort of in-depth, uh, intense membership process. When I say membership, I don't mean that you have to go through some sort of formal process necessarily. What is required, whenever I say that church membership is biblical, what is required, as we will see, is that you regularly attend a particular church, that you selflessly give to a particular church, that you sacrificially serve in a particular church, that you're accountable to a particular people, that you submit to a particular set of elders, etc. And notice there that there is an importance to the word particular that you find a particular body in which you are doing life. In other words, you're not dating various churches. That's okay for a season as you're looking for a new church, but uh, the life of a Christian should be lived embedded within a particular uh, people. And so membership is kind of a shorthand way of describing all of those different functions that I just uh, talked about, a whole series of biblical commands and expectations. So if someone were to, let's say, attend Parkway regularly, they were to serve in various capacities regularly, they were to give regularly, they were to join a community group, they were to submit to the elders, etc. but they just didn't go through the formal membership process. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily foolish or necessarily in sin or anything like that. However, doing so, if that was the case, if you said, this is my church, this is the elders that I want to submit to, this is the people that I want to be discipled by and help disciple, and this is the church that I want to do life in, but you don't go through the process, that's just unhelpful for us because it doesn't formalize that sort of relationship. It doesn't really help us to understand as elders who's really in and who's really out, who's just kind of passing through, who's kind of dating or whatever it might be. So membership is a way to kind of let your yes be yes in regards to the biblical commands. So the command is not membership. The command is serving and giving and submitting and discipling and all those kinds of uh, things. And membership is just a formalized way to let your yes be yes. Does that make sense? So that's what I'm arguing for here. So when I say that membership is biblical, uh, remember that I really mean that belonging is the biblical command and membership is just kind of a cultural way to do that. 
uh, a, a thousand years ago, that wasn't the case. There might have been one church in your town, and by virtue of the fact that you attended that one church regularly, you were therefore a member. That's no longer the case today when within three miles in every direction of us is probably 30 churches. And, uh, and so belonging is the biblical expectation. Membership is just the cultural way that we kind of appropriate that. So where do we get the idea that membership is biblical. And I want to begin by making sure we remember, we've talked about this a number of times before, but we remember the importance of implicit truth. What some people want to do is they want to dismiss the idea of membership. They want to say that I don't think it's biblical because you don't see an explicit command in Scripture that says you shall formally uh, join a church or something like that. But I don't need an explicit command if something is implicit on the basis of other commands. And so let me give you a few examples of this. We've talked about, again, these a number of times, but there is not, a, there is not one passage in Scripture that explicitly says the words that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. There's no passage in all of Scripture that explicitly says that, but the concept of the Trinity is certainly there. Likewise, you, there's no command explicitly against doing meth, Right? But does that mean that you can go home and do meth? No. Why? Because there are commands that say what? Yeah, be led by the Spirit and not be drunk. So that's, uh, that, that's clear. And so the effect of meth would be similar to the effect of drunkenness. There's commands about stewarding your body. Uh, there's commands about submitting to the laws of the land. And so this is a, an implicit idea. Please, no one go home and do meth, all right? Uh, and so, the, although the, the explicit words, thou shalt not do meth or thou shalt not do heroin is not in Scripture, the concept is implied on the basis of these other commands. Or, how many of y'all are married? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you did some sort of vows. Raise your hand if, if in those vows you explicitly said the words, I will never murder you. Right? That's creepy, right? That's weird. It's like someone who walks up to a girl at a bar and says, I'm not a stalker. What's the first thing she thinks? He's a stalker, right? So if you tell your wife, by the way, I'm never going to murder you, she's going to think you're going to murder her, right? Now, the fact that you didn't say, I'm not going to murder you, does that mean that she should be worried or he should be worried? No, obviously not. It's implied on the basis of the fact that I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to submit to you, all of these sorts of things. So implicit truth is just as true as explicit truth, all right? But we have this idea that uh, unless something is explicit in Scripture, it's not therefore in Scripture, and that is uh, not actually true. And so the idea of membership, the concept of membership is uh, certainly embedded in, uh, in Scripture. And, uh, and so where do we get the idea that uh, membership is implied in Scripture? I gave uh, a few different uh, places, six or seven, I forget exactly how many I ate that I landed on. Okay, number one. Number one, this is uh, where we see that uh, membership is implied in, uh, in Scripture. The very nature and existence of local churches. Sometimes you'll see the word uh, church used in Scripture to refer to the universal church, but often you will find it speaking of local churches. In fact, of all of the uses of the Greek word ekklesia in the New Testament, most of them actually don't refer to the universal church. Uh, they actually refer to local churches. So you'll see the church in Galatia, or the church in Ephesus, or uh, references to churches in the plural. I listed out just a few of those from the book of 1 Corinthians in your notes. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the, what's that next word? Churches. Is that singular or plural? Plural, all right. Is there a singular universal church? Yes, is that what this passage is talking about? No, this is talking about local churches. 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches, again, plural, of God. That's not just plural in English. That's plural in uh, Greek as well. 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. In 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia send you a greeting. So it seems as though local churches in Scripture are kind of microcosms of the universal church. They're microcosms of the singular, well, larger universal church. So if one formally belongs to the universal church, then it stands to reason that one should also formally belong to a local church. So that's the first sort of implicit uh, or, or rationale for this implicit idea that membership is biblical. The second one, is the imagery of a body. 
uh, throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20. I won't read it for the sake of time, but uh, you can read that on your own. But this is this analogy of, uh, of the body, that is the local body, being, uh, uh, or the, the church being like a body. By the way, this, is, uh, this passage is where we get the word membership from uh, because uh, it talks of individual believers as being members of a body. So that's why we call it membership because of, uh, of this language in the Bible. So is, that, is this passage just referring to the universal church? So the universal church is a body, but there's no sort of local church expression of that. No, uh, in light of the context of 1 Corinthians, that can't be the case. Remember, we just read a number of passages from 1 Corinthians, same book that we see 1 Corinthians 12 in. We just read multiple passages from 1 Corinthians that speak about churches plural and not just the universal singular church. So in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul's not primarily concerned with things that are true of the universal church. He's concerned with things that are true of local churches uh, in, uh, in particular. Besides, the text doesn't really make sense. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 12 as if that's just talking about the universal church, it really wouldn't make sense because the entire passage is about cooperation and relationship, that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So imagine if this is just referring to the universal church, think about what percentage of the universal church you actually know, right? I mean, it's, it's less than 1% of 1% of all Christians in the world. So how much of an actual relationship do you have with them? How much of a commitment do you have to actually help disciple them or to be discipled by them? Some, uh, some believer that's living in Serbia or some uh, believer that's, uh, that's living in Haiti or whatever it might be. And so the, the idea doesn't make sense that this is only talking about uh, the universal church. And so these local church expression of the body, a Christian outside of the church uh, in light of this is kind of like a fish outside of the water. Or, or take uh, sort of the, the member and uh, body imagery. How long can a kidney survive outside a body? I don't know the exact answer, but you would imagine it's not very long, right? You don't take a kidney out of a body and then wait weeks and weeks and weeks in order to implant it into the recipient. Uh, there, there's some sense in which there needs to be an immediacy to it. And uh, this is why churches traditionally had letters of membership, that you would remain a member at a particular church, and then whenever you had to move for work or whatever it is for school, then you would go to another church, and the moment you joined that church, what would happen is they'd send an actual formal letter releasing you from membership in one church and joining to membership in another church. Because there was this idea, I don't want any sort of period of time when I'm outside the covering and care of a local church. And that's not the way that, uh, that things typically uh, happen uh, today. Uh, typically, the, kind of the, the idea is, I'm going to leave a church, and then maybe I'll find a church at some point in, uh, in the future. Um, and uh, so the imagery of a body is also going to imply uh, membership, that you belong to a particular body. This is my hand. It doesn't belong to you. This is my hand. And so likewise, when you're a member, you're a member of a particular body. The next one, the assumption of a context in which to love one another. We've talked about this a number of times, but you cannot be faithful to Christ apart from others. Why not? Because he has explicitly commanded you to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to accept one another, to instruct one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, to speak the truth to one another, to submit to one another, to bear with one another, admonish one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not give up meeting with one another, and a couple dozen other one another's. If that seemed redundant, it just simply points to the fact that you don't understand how prevalent this idea is in Scripture. There are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of passages that talk about our mutual responsibility for, uh, for each other. And so membership is going to provide a context, a formal context in which to do that. For example, sort of uh, take my family, right? I bear some degree of responsibility to love, to serve, to encourage my mom, uh, my dad, my sister, my brother, my nieces, my nephews, uh, you know, grandparents, aunts and uncles, all of these sorts of things. But my primary responsibility is to Casey and to Larkin and to my unborn uh, son. I have this greater responsibility. Likewise, 
you have some level of responsibility to the universal church. You have some level of responsibility to love and to encourage and to serve uh, anyone who's a Christian anywhere, but you bear this greater responsibility for those that you are doing life with within the context of the local church. By the way, this is uh, why you have a responsibility to get to know the other members of a local church. That's one of the reasons that we announce new members in service, that we announce new members every single member meeting is because we want you to see that person and think, that's somebody I need to get to know. Because I now bear some degree of responsibility for that person in regards to their life, love for Jesus, their discipleship, and, uh, and so forth. So the assumption of a context in which to carry out these biblical commands to love one another and serve one another and, uh, and so forth. A fourth uh, reason that we would say that church membership is biblical uh, is because of the commands to submit to elders. Look at Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those, who, uh, of the, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage uh, to you. First Peter 5 says something similar, um, and First uh, Timothy 5 does as well. So, question. How might you be obedient to this command, which calls you to submit to and obey your leaders, your elders? How would you be faithful to this command without belonging to a particular church. If you're not going to belong to a particular church, if you're not going to have a particular set of elders that you're actually submitting to or obeying, then your only other option is to say, I'm going to obey and submit to every elder everywhere. So that means you have to submit to female elders, even though the Bible says that there should not be female elders. That means that you're going to submit to elders that are part of a prosperity gospel church or some other sort of heretical uh, church. Uh, elders that are theologically liberal churches that deny the resurrection, whatever it uh, might be. As a wife is only called to submit to her own husband, so you as a church member are only called to submit to the elders of your local church. The Bible does not ever assume that you submit to all elders everywhere, just like it doesn't uh, assume that all women submit to all men everywhere. And uh, so the commands to submit to elders imply church membership. Likewise, on the other end of the spectrum, the accountability of elders is going to imply church membership. Again, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Look at that next phrase, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Or look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Look at this next phrase. That is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this is why formal membership is so important. It provides the means the means for the elders to know who is in and who is out. It provides the, the means for the elders to actually assess, uh, assess who actually belongs to this body, who we're responsible for, and who's just kind of passing through. How can I, as an elder, how can I be faithful to this command, which commands me to shepherd the flock, if I don't know who's actually a part of the flock or not? Are all pastors, am I responsible for all believers everywhere? Again, believers that are uh, somewhere all the way across the world or whatever it might be, of course not. Of course not. I don't bear an actual responsibility for them because I don't have a relationship with them. I don't have opportunities to interact with them and shepherd them and, uh, and so forth. And so there is an assumption uh, on the basis of this that the pastors would know who are actually a part of their church. So as I'm thinking about pastoral responsibility, I do so kind of through concentric circles. I bear some sort of responsibility for the community. Uh, I bear some sort of responsibility, uh, even the lost pagan secular community. I bear some sort of responsibility with, uh, Christians, for Christians at other churches. That's why we post stuff online and write blogs and meet with uh, people that are members of other churches for edification, whatever it might be. I bear a, a, a responsibility for visitors, people who are just passing through or just attending for a period of time at Parkway. And then in that inner circle, though, those who have actually formally joined, who've made their yes, yes, and said, I want to be a part of Parkway, uh, the elders have that greater responsibility for them. So that's a fifth reason. Sixth reason, church discipline. 
church discipline. We spent an entire session talking about church discipline a few weeks back, so I won't rehearse all of that. Uh, you can read Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, a, a ton of other texts uh, on that. Go back and listen to that audio if you have questions uh, about that, because this is one of the most misunderstood and one of the most misappreciated doctrines in, uh, in churches today. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to read those passages. But, for, but Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and all these other passages that we've considered when we taught through church discipline command the church to do something in regards to a, a member of the church that is persistently, habitually, unrepentantly living in sin. What does it tell them to do? It says to engage them if they refuse to listen. Engage them again if they refuse to listen. What do you eventually do? You remove them from the church. All right? But how do we do what uh, Jesus commands in Matthew 18 where he says, how do we tell it to the church if we don't actually know who's a part of the church? Is the expectation of that in order for us to be faithful to Matthew 18 when Jesus says, tell it to the church? Is the expectation that we would uh, share all of the details of someone's sin on a Sunday morning, even though there's a number of visitors and maybe even unbelievers and kids and all those kinds of things? Is the expectation that we post it on our website? How do we tell it to the church if we don't actually know who the church is? So here at Parkway, one of the ways that we do that is we email all the, the members and we announce that in a member meeting if there is uh, ever that case. Or how do we remove somebody, which is the final step of the process, how do we remove somebody if they never really belonged in the first place? All right, think about it like this. I can't be kicked out of the Girl Scouts of America. Why not? This may be surprising, but I've never actually joined the Girl Scouts of America, right? You can't be formally excluded from something that you were never formally included in. So on, on, uh, on the basis of the fact that the Bible tells us to formally exclude somebody, there is an assumption that there is some sort of formal inclusion as, uh, as well. So that's church discipline. A seventh reason is that uh, we know historically and biblically that the uh, church had various lists 1 Timothy 5, 9 talks about a, uh, the enrollment of a widow upon a particular uh, list. So it stands to reason that there was some sort of formal list of members uh, if the church kept a formal list of widows to care for. Uh, again, early pastors would have needed to know who's in and, uh, and who's how, out. And then lastly, another uh, implicit evidence is the argument from history. Really, this suspicion towards membership is a modern phenomenon, which should always make us a degree of uh, suspicious uh, about it, all right? We tend to think that modern is better. That is the case when it comes to theology. I'm sorry, when it comes to technology, that's not the case when it comes to uh, theology. The opposite is often true. Why? Because culture only drifts away from truth. It never drifts toward truth. Secular, pagan, worldly culture never drifts towards Scripture, towards the gospel, towards the kingdom, towards truth. It always drifts away from those. By the way, we actually wrote a blog about that this past week called The Evangelical Drift. So the argument from history, the fact that for thousands of years, churches were arranged on the basis of membership is another implicit uh, evidence. So we're back to where we began. If implicit truth is just as true as explicit truth, and if Scripture truly implies church membership, then failing to actually belong, again, remember, belong is the biblical command. Membership is just the way in which uh, our culture has chosen to arrange that uh, belonging. Then failing to actually belong to a church is unfaithful, it's unwise, it's unbiblical, it's even sinful. I'm not in any way implying that if you're currently not a member of a, uh, of a local church that you're in sin or that you're being foolish or something like that. But I am saying that if you persist in that condition because you're unwilling to covenant with, to commit to, to join, to belong a church, then I'm definitely saying that. That you're being, at the best case scenario, you're being unwise and uh, unbiblical and, uh, and foolish. So, that's church membership is biblical. That's a lot of heavy stuff. So I want to talk about the good stuff. Church membership is beneficial. Not that biblical is not good, but church membership is beneficial. And trying to demonstrate that church membership is biblical, which we just talked about, I don't want, we don't want anyone to, uh, to just apathetically submit. I don't want anyone in this room to say, you know what, before I wasn't convinced that I should be a member, but now I am, even though I absolutely hate it. 
right? We don't want begrudging members here at uh, Parkway. Um, imagine telling your, your, you know, fiance, I don't want to marry you, but I guess I have to, so I will. Or to tell your wife, I don't want to love you, but I guess I have to, or something like that. That's not a great foundation for your marriage. Likewise with membership, right? Membership should be something that you're excited about. Uh, if you actually understand what the Bible says about membership, this should be something that you're not apathetic towards. This should be something that you crave, that you long for, that you're eager for, that you actually desire, that you're some, something that you're excited about, not something that you begrudgingly uh, accept. And so let me give you uh, a few benefits of church membership, benefits of joining a church. Number one, it provides a spiritual covering. As we read from Hebrews and 1 Peter and other passages, the elders are like shepherds watching over the flock, and one of their responsibilities is to guard uh, against wolves. And uh, another responsibility is that they just are overlooking and overwatching uh, the church to see which sheep look like they are dehydrated, which sheep look like they're in need of food, which sheep look like they're malnourished, which sheep look like they are sick or whatever it might be, and to provide the care that is necessary for them. So the elders here at Parkway, one of the ways that we try to do this is we, we proactively take responsibility for the members of the church. So we kind of have uh, two different uh, roles. Uh, we're kind of reactive when it comes to, to non-members. So if you're not a member, if you're a visitor, if you're a member of another church, whatever it might be, and you want to get coffee, you want to get lunch, whatever, you reach out to us, we will absolutely do that. All right? That's more of a reactionary sort of thing. Whereas when it comes to our own members, we are proactive. So if you're a member of this church, then at least once every two, three months, you get a call or an email or a text or something like that from an elder at the church and or a staff member saying, hey, how are you doing? We prayed for you today. Can we pray for you with anything else? Do you want to get together with coffee or lunch or something like that? So we proactively seek to do that. So it provides spiritual covering and care and so forth. Another benefit of actually joining a church is it provides accountability. In other words, there's people who know you, who can press on you, where there's evidence of drift in your life, where there's evidence of apathy. Maybe your attendance begins to lag. Maybe you seem frustrated or bitter or you're a little sharper in your language. Maybe you start to gossip. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you fall back into some old patterns of sin, whatever it, uh, it might be. That might not seem like a benefit to you. Like it might not seem like a benefit to have someone who's going to engage you and confront you whenever you're drifting. If so, that means you don't, you don't really understand the importance of sanctification. You don't really understand the severity of sin. You don't really understand the importance of accountability. And uh, so the more that you understand sin, the more that you understand God's means of sanctification, the more that you should crave accountability and community. If there's something in you that only wants to keep relationships on the surface and shallow, there's something in you that's broken. I don't know what that thing is. We would love to help walk with you through that. That's part of the uh, elders providing spiritual covering and care. But you should crave vulnerability and accountability and these sorts of things. And membership provides a context for that. Membership also, or belonging, formal belonging, provides a means for battling pride and, uh, and selfishness. One of the things I didn't like whenever I was, so I was single until I was 35, and one of the things I did not like about uh, being a single is oftentimes married people would say, well, you can't be sanctified, you can't be humble. Marriage is so humbling. And I thought as a single person, I thought, well, tell that to Jesus or tell that to Paul or something like that. It's entirely possible to be sanctified as a single person. Marriage, though, is going to kind of turn up the heat on your sanctification, Right? Uh, kids also are going to further turn up the heat on your sanctification. Likewise, you can be humble without belonging to uh, a group of other people, but whenever you actually embed yourself, whenever you actually incarnate within a local body, that actually turns the heat up on your sanctification. It provides this context for battling pride and humility and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so it's no guarantee that if you join a church, you're going to grow in, uh, in humility and selflessness, but it at least provides a greater context, the greater opportunity or venue for those things. When you get that call at 2 a.m. from someone in your community group saying their spouse has just had a heart attack or, uh, or you just found out that uh, you know, your good friend's spouse is cheating on them 
or something like that. That's an opportunity for you to get out of bed and in that moment to drive across town, to battle sleepiness, to battle uh, your own selfishness and all of these sorts of things, to humble yourself and to love others with generosity and sacrifice and grace and love and those kinds of things. So it provides this means, this context for battling pride and selfishness and a hundred other sins that we could mention. Next, it provides an opportunity for shared mission and vision. There's this pooling of resources that exists within the local church toward this common goal. So imagine that my goal is to transform North Texas, right? My goal is that North Texas, that, you know, that, that uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So my goal uh, in that I am living within the, uh, the appointed boundaries of, uh, of God's sovereignty, I'm living within North Texas, and my goal that North Texas would be influenced by the kingdom and I try to do that unilaterally. I try to do that all by myself. And so imagine I, that North Texas is this huge boulder weighing like 10,000 pounds or something like that. And I am this single sort of thread of fabric, this thread of yarn or something like that. And I attach that thread to that boulder and I try to pull. What's going to happen? Is that boulder going to move? No, I'm not that strong, right? And the thread is not that strong. What's going to happen to the thread? It's just going to break. But what happens is I call up Tom Van Steenbergen. I call up Edwin Feeney. I call up Logan Wright. We all take our yarn. We tie them all together. We intermingle them. And then we pull together. I get 50. I get 100 people pulling together. There's a chance at some point where we actually begin to move that, where we actually begin to affect change. And that's the goal. That we would not simply be sort of solitary Christians all trying to do things on our own, but that we might uh, kind of intermingle our lives, to interweave them together for the good of our community. By the way, when that string then gets too big, I have, uh, you know, 300 different pieces of yarn, and it's so big that we can no longer hold on to it. That's when you plant a new church. That's what church planning is, uh, is all about. So church, uh, church membership provides this context for each of us to be part of something greater than ourselves and actually have a real chance of affecting change in our communities and in our cultures. Whereas if we were just like in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, we're not accomplishing anything. All of us are going to pull, all of us are going to break our threads. And so it provides an opportunity for shared mission and shared vision. And then lastly, it provides opportunities for you to be faithful to the Great Commission call that you might be disciples and make disciples. That you might be discipled and make disciples. According to, to Scripture, the work of ministry and the making of disciples isn't just something that the elders of the church do. It's what the members of the church do. You are the ones who are making disciples. We're the ones who exist to help equip you for that uh, responsibility. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. By the way, shepherds there, also translated in some translations, pastors. The pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Our job is to equip you. Your job is to do the work of ministry. So each time, again, each time we add new members, that's one more person that uh, needs to both join in in helping us make disciples and also needs to join in in being discipled. So membership is kind of like joining a gym. We've used this illustration uh, before. It doesn't guarantee that you'll get in shape, all right? Some of you are members of gym and you haven't actually been to the gym in a long time. So simply joining a gym doesn't guarantee that you're going to exercise or get healthy or whatever it might be, but it does provide a context. It provides a venue in which that becomes uh, at least uh, the greater opportunity. Likewise with uh, membership. Simply joining a church doesn't mean that you'll actually make disciples or that you'll be discipled, but it does provide a context in which that can, uh, and happen. can, that, that can happen. If you're faithful, in regards to their membership expectations, which we'll talk about shortly, then it will happen. I think oftentimes we think of membership through this lens of how we use the word elsewhere. What are other things besides the church that you can be members of? The gym, yeah. <laughs> Brian was paying attention. What else? Who's a member of Costco or Sam's or something like that? Zach is. Uh, so, or what about uh, anybody ever back in the day a member of one of those old CD clubs 
or movie clubs or something like that, all right? Uh, so all of those things, what, what do the, all of those have in common? Costco, Sam's, a gym, old CD, movie clubs, whatever it might be. There's very little expectation, right? What do they care about? Money, right? If you never go to the gym but you pay, you're the ideal, church, the, the ideal gym member, right? They don't want you to actually use their resources. What do they want you to do? They just want you to pay. That is not the case with the church, all right? We would, we would much rather you not give anything and actually be here than that you give and not be here. And, uh, and so church is decidedly not like those things. Joining without actually participating is worthless. Uh, so I said earlier that uh, church is kind of like joining a gym, but in this other sense, it is decidedly unlike joining a, uh, a gym. A gym provides a context for you to get healthier and stronger and those kinds of things, but they don't really care whether you actually do. A church provides a context for you to get stronger and healthier, but we actually care whether or not that is the case. If you do not get strengthened, if you do not grow, then we have actually failed you in regards to the meaning of membership. And, uh, and so for us to not care about those things is not to care about you. So let's talk a little bit about expectations. Those are some of the benefits. We could have listed out dozens more, but for the sake of time, I just stopped at, uh, at five. But I want to talk a little bit about expectations because I think that's really important to recognize. There is a burden, as there are benefits. With any gift, there is an accompanying responsibility uh, to steward that gift. And so church membership is also a burden. It's biblical, it's beautiful, it's beneficial, but it's also a burden. I don't mean that in a pejorative sort of sense. I simply mean that it carries responsibilities and obligations and challenges, and uh, it's inconvenient and uncomfortable. So that's one of the things you should know going in, is that the expectation for you, our expectation is not that we're going to hand you a latte whenever you get in and give you a massage chair as you listen to the sermon or whatever it might be. There's a sense in which membership is intended to be somewhat uncomfortable, somewhat inconvenient uh, for you. For whatever reason, I think Christians love to simplify things and kind of reduce it down to a lowest common denominator. We don't like paradox. We don't like mystery. So when talking about the, the, the Trinity, we like to think that either God is one or God is three. We don't like to wrestle with the fact that he is one and he's three, and we mean different things by those. Or, uh, or we like to exalt the responsibility of man or the sovereignty of God, but we don't like to kind of wrestle with how those things fit together or we play the deity of Christ against his humanity, or the head of the Christian against the heart of the Christian, uh, as if those things are mutually exclusive. And I think that that also is the case when it comes to understanding our cor corporate aspects of our salvation and our individual aspects of our salvation. In many traditions, the church historically neglected the individual personal aspects of salvation and just kind of focused on the corporate aspects. You see that in medieval Roman Catholicism and so forth. But what we've done, and especially American Western Protestantism, is we've swung the pendulum the other way. We've completely neglected the fact that your salvation has corporate collective aspects, and we've just and exalted and emphasized the uh, personal aspects. But the problem with that is that in our desire to, to promote the biblical reality, it is a biblical reality of a personal relationship with Christ, we have kind of given in, we've bought into the cultural idea of the very unbiblical idea of a private relationship with Jesus. Right? Those are different. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, you do not have a private relationship with Jesus. You cannot have a private relationship with Jesus. You can only have a personal relationship with Jesus that is also connected to a corporate relationship with other believers. The greatest uh, command is that you love God and love others. And uh, so we were created for that sort of community. So that does not exist. The idea of a private relationship with, uh, with Jesus, as, as it was said, no man may have God as his father that doesn't have the church as his, uh, as his mother. So one of the primary difficulties as you're talking about membership with, uh, with people that kind of grew up in 21st century American evangelicalism or, or even just uh, America in general is we tend to think through this very individualistic sort of, uh, of lens. And, uh, and what we kind of think is, what can you do for me? We're all focused on the benefits of membership and not at all on the burdens. Instead of thinking about how can I serve this body, I ask this question, how can this body serve me? 
How can it serve my wants, my whims, my needs, my whatever it, uh, it might uh, be? By the way, that's the number one reason also that people leave churches. Not the, not the only reason. A lot of people leave churches because of good, righteous reasons. They move to another city or whatever it might be. That church drifts uh, and begins to teach things that are false or whatever it might be. Um, but the primary reason in ev- American evangelicalism is that my wants, my desires, my felt needs, my preferences aren't being fulfilled, so I'll go somewhere that they are. And trust me, there are thousands of other churches in the area. There will be a church that will absolutely cater to that craving that you might have to just simply be a consumer. So rather than teaching people how to put sin to death, there are a number of churches that simply will uh, scratch what itches. And so one of the ways to grow in sanctification, one of the ways to get the most out of church is not to think about what I can get out of the church, but instead what I can give to the church. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the obligations, some of the burdens or expectations of church membership. Number one is sanctification. That is a burden, that's an obligation, that's an expectation of church membership. Your ability to function within this body is restricted by sin. In other words, what you do, again, you don't have a private relationship with Jesus, so what you do affects the entire body. Any of y'all fans of the, uh, the NBA? Any, any of y'all watch any of the NBA finals? One of the greatest players uh, in uh, basketball today was uh, seriously injured in the NBA finals and uh, actually ruptured his Achilles. His name's Kevin Durant, probably one of the top two or three players uh, alive. And, uh, and so did that only affect Kevin Durant? No, that affected Steph Curry, that affected Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. It affected the entire Warriors organization. It affected all of their fans, likewise in the church. If you are struggling with some sort of sin, if you're giving in to some sort of sin, whatever it might be, that is affecting others around you, whether you recognize it or not. What you look at on the computer, how you talk to your spouse, the sorrows, the joys that you experience, all of that is our business And I don't mean by our, I don't mean me as an elder, I mean me as a member of this body. It's the business of your church, the business of your family. Your business is our business because we love you and we're part of the same body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Again, there's no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus. That doesn't exist. You can't be a member of the body of Christ and not be a member of the body of Christ. That doesn't make sense. So one of the obligations that you have is sanctification, taking seriously the call of God upon your life towards holiness and godliness and confession and vulnerability and accountability and, uh, and so forth. Another one, attendance. There are dozens of obligations that I could list out. Some of these are articulated in our statement of faith. Uh, I'm just mentioning a few that happen to be on my heart and mind. I want to get on a soapbox a bit. Uh, even though I'm probably preaching to the choir. If you come to theological whipping, you probably come to church fairly often. Do you know how many Sundays, on average, the committed evangelical church member attended services one generation ago? About 45 to 48, all right? What's the number today? Anybody want to guess? It's less than 35, so less than uh, three Sundays a month. So what's happened? Why has there been that huge cultural shift, all right? Has attendance somehow gotten harder? Well, no, it's gotten easier. We've gotten better transportation. We have more options. There's a lot of churches that have like six or eight or whatever it is, services uh, on a week. For the majority, now this is the majority, some people have legitimate health issues, some people have job issues that prevent them, some people have to travel for work, whatever it might be, so I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about you in particular, I'm talking about in general the cultural trend, the only thing that's changed is priorities. What's competing today? Kids sports, kids activities, vacations, golf, other hobbies, whatever it might be, working 80-hour weeks simply so you can afford fancy stuff, whatever uh, it might be. It reminds me of a quote by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes, who wrote, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The reason that reminds me of it is because sports, I love sports. 
I played sports. I love watching sports. Sports are great. Hobbies are great. Sleeping in is great. Vacations are great. Heading the beach for the weekend is great. But all of those things pale in comparison to the glory of gathering with the church and hearing God's Word and worshiping on the weekends. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever take a vacation. You should take a vacation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever doing those sorts of things. I'm saying there is some level of misunderstanding if you're not prioritizing your life around the gathering of the saints. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you in particular, with all of your health issues or whatever it might be, I'm not trying to rebuke you or call you out because I don't know everybody in this room and your circumstances. All I'm saying is if you don't seek to orient your life around the gathering of the body, something is wrong. Something is broken. So I'm not saying if you're not here all the time, something's broken. I'm saying if you don't want to be here all the time, then something is broken. That you would seek to do whatever you can to make that a reality as uh, often as possible. So attendance, submitting to leadership is another expectation or uh, obligation. There are bad shepherds out there, let's be honest. There are prosperity gospel charlatans. There's abusive predators, all of these sorts of things. But the fact that some elders are wicked doesn't mean that all are. And neither does it justify you not doing what Scripture commands, which is to obey and submit to elders, according to Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter and all of these sorts of things. All Christians are called to submit and obey some elders. Elders have a responsibility to leave, to lead, and to serve with humility and love and selflessness, and members have a responsibility to submit to uh, elders. So let me give you a few practical applications of that for you. You're a member here at Parkway, or you're seeking to be a member here, you're thinking about being a member here, whatever it might be. How do you submit to uh, leaders? Let me give you just a few ways. Number one, pray for us. We need prayer, constant prayer. Second, hold us accountable to Scripture. If we start drifting If we start uh, adapting and just simply wanting to fit into culture, if we try to be too cool or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, we start capitulating on some sort of a a theological topic, then hold us accountable. Call us to repentance for those things. That's where the congregation, we're a congregational form of membership, that's where the congregation holds us accountable. Third, encourage us. When someone dislikes something, how often do we hear about it? All the time. When someone likes something, how often do we hear about it? Hardly never, right? 99% of the time, if you dislike something, you're going to tell us. It's like 1% of the time, if you actually like something, you're going to tell us. If we make changes or something, uh, then uh, we hear about it. So when someone enjoys a sermon or a lesson, we might hear about it very infrequently. Elders are people, though. We need encouragement. If the Scripture says encourage one another, exhort one another, we're people, We need encouragement and exhortation and so forth. Don't worry about, I don't want to encourage Zach because he's going to get a uh, a big head or something like that. Trust me, someone else is going to discourage him. Someone else is going to discourage me. You do your part to actually encourage uh, us. Have a a goal uh, to build us up, to help us in that way. Fourth, uh, give us the benefit of the doubt, right? If we make changes or something, Uh, we have a responsibility to explain those changes to you. We have a responsibility to uh, have those conversations, but you have a responsibility to doubt your doubts, to ask questions in humility where you're confused or bothered or whatever it is. In other words, don't be someone who complains. Don't be a hallway uh, campaigner or something like that. Don't be suspicious of every little thing. Have a general disposition of trust towards uh, the elders. Again, don't give us carte blanche ability to do whatever we want. We don't want that. We don't want to be kings. But do give us grace. And uh, So give us the benefit of the doubt. Uh, next, bring the church in on major life decisions. I think it's so strange that the average person who works in a job would never ever think about just leaving their job without giving some sort of two weeks notice or without talking to their boss or something like that. And yet, how often do people leave churches Or how often do people take other jobs that are going to seriously affect their family and so forth without any sort of counsel, without any sort of insight, without having any conversations, uh, whatever it uh, might be? That's crazy to me. 
If wisdom comes in an abundance of counselors, why wouldn't you want godly biblical counsel on all these decisions that affect not only yourself, not only your family, but also the larger uh, body? And beyond that, a way to submit to leadership is to fulfill the various other obligations that we're talking about. Um, And so submitting to the Bible is a form of submitting to those who have been called to teach you the Bible. So to attend, to give, to serve, to all of these sorts of things is a way that you actually submit to uh, leadership. We could go on and on, but I'll just give two more um, obligations there that I just mentioned, serving and giving to the church. So I just want you to ask this question, am I serving, am I giving, and participating in the life of the church in a way that is actually truly regular and selfless and sacrificial and generous? If not, then whether you're a formal member or not, you're not fulfilling the obligations, the responsibilities, the expectations that Christ placed upon you as a member of His universal body. So, what do you see in each of these burdens? Uh, And uh, Zach, you can go ahead and start making your way up here. What you see in each of these is selflessness and sacrifice. And that's the burden, that's the obligation, that's the expectation for membership, that you would sacrifice your time, your comfort, your convenience, your money, your preferences, your sleep, your hobbies, your vacations, and so forth for the sake of, of the body. Why? Because your good and your joy are inseparable for the greater glory and good of the local church. Okay, that's it. Questions? The end. That's how we'll end uh, sermons and lessons and stuff. I'm done talking now. Uh, Okay, you guys had a lot of really good questions. So again, if we don't get to your question, it's just because we don't have time. It's not because we don't consider it to be a good question, but uh, as you can see uh, from that thing that stays up there for like an hour, you can email it to us if we don't don't answer it. So uh, a few few questions here. So first of all, how long should a professing Christian be allowed to avoid membership after a bad church membership experience before it is a sin problem? Okay, I think that that is a great question, and uh, just to encourage you, if, you, if that's you, I've, uh, I've been burned uh, in church as well. So I think a lot of us have been burned uh, by a church or in church. Christ is great, but his bride is a little bit sloppy, and so, uh, and so people will hurt us. So I'll give you just a, kind of a quick thought, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you. Uh, as Jeff mentioned in the lesson, the command is not so much be a formal member of a church. The command, biblically, is to belong to Christ's body, and the way that we do that at Parkway, we call it membership, but really all we're doing with the word membership is trying to summarize all the commands that the Bible does actually give us, that there's a command to belong and submit to elders and take communion and uh, hold, one each, uh, hold each other accountable, etc. So uh, I would say that even if you've been burned by a church, I think you should start belonging somewhere right away, but I don't think that means you have to become a formal member right away. I think it is totally fine to take a season of rest, a season of healing. Uh, I think it's okay to go slow. I mean, if, if something were to happen and uh, let's say I, I got fired or something from Parkway and I had to, to go to another church, I would go very slow in that process. I'm not just going to commit myself to somebody until I've done the research and I know they're solid theologically and all these other things. And so I think you can go slow with formal membership, but I, 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 you don't want your wound to keep you from really belonging to the body because listen to this, one of the ways that God is going to heal that wound is through the body, okay? And so, uh, anyway, those are just kind of an initial, some initial thoughts. Jeffrey, anything? Yeah, I mean, I would say there should be no period of time. There's no season in that um, uh, sabbatical or rest period where you're not doing the things that Scripture actually commands. So, there should never be a season where you say, let's say we say it's three months or six months, those are just arbitrary numbers, but whatever it is, that's not three months or six months that you're not attending a church, that you're not giving to a church, that you're not serving in a church or whatever it might be. And so there's a lot of opportunities, even in the context of Parkway, for you to serve as a non-member, for you to give as a non-member, for you to attend as a non-member, for you to get on our calendars, to meet with elders so that you can assess whether or not we're the type of church that you want to submit to, for you to join a community group, all of these sorts of things. So I would say there should be an immediate desire to do those biblical commands, and then the process of actually formally joining the church can be a little bit uh, delayed. So I would agree with you. All right. Uh, considering the eight implicit arguments made, why do we not allow very young children to be members of the church? I think that's a good question. Let me clarify something on this because the elders discussed this a few months ago. <clears throat> when we talk about being members of a church, there is a difference between members from the way that Christ sees it versus members from the way that the state of Texas looking at a 501c3 nonprofit sees it. 
Okay? If somebody is a Christian, they've repented, they've trusted in Christ, and they've even taken that next step to uh, be baptized, they are a member of Christ's church. So if you have a very young child who is a believer, they are part of the church. Okay? That's different than when we have to write up our constitution and bylaws for the state of Texas. Okay? All the state of Texas cares about is who are your members of your organization. So I think it's helpful just to clarify, there's a sense in which your kids are members of the church if they're believers, uh, but there's another sense in which they're not. We didn't want to split it. Some churches say you have voting members and non-voting members, and they do it like that. Then you have two memberships. We didn't want to do that. So we just want to say, from Christ's perspective, their perspective, there is a sense in which if you have a believing child, they are a member of Christ's church and somehow belong to Parkway. But we have to distinguish that from would we, in the state's eyes, allow them to vote on doctrine if we needed to do that? Would we have them in a discipline meeting where we're giving very explicit sexual details because of some sort of a church discipline thing? We would not necessarily want that, okay? So just be clear, they are part of the gathering. Again, the command is not necessarily membership, it's belonging. Your believing kids do belong. That's different than what the state of Texas cares about if we had to go to some sort of legal battle in court and they asked who are the official voting members or something like that of your church. So I think that question can be answered just by understanding what do you mean by the word church? Do you mean the way God sees it or do you mean the way the state of Texas see it, sees it? So anything to add on that? It's good. Okay. Next we have, is there a biblical way to leave a local church body and join another? Do you want to, I know you've thought about this uh, a lot in the past. Do you want to mention a few things about maybe biblical reasons yeah, uh, yeah. to leave and how to join? Yeah, so, uh, so I think it begins with, do you have a biblical reason to leave the church? And uh, so I think you always have to ask that question. Am I leaving for righteous reasons? Am I leaving for unrighteous reasons? Am I leaving because they are all of a sudden, you know, denying the resurrection or, you know, they just appointed a female elder or a homosexual elder or whatever it might be? Or am I leaving simply because they changed the coffee? So in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned some actual church splits and some were because they replaced the coffee or changed the color of the seats or whatever it might be. And so am I leaving for a righteous reason or an unrighteous reason? If you're leaving for an unrighteous reason, there's no righteous reason to leave or there's no righteous way to leave, if that makes sense. Uh, now, assuming that you do have a righteous reason, the church has drifted, uh, you know, you're moving to another city or there's, there's dozens of other things that we could uh, talk through in terms of righteous reasons to leave a church. But uh, assuming that it is a righteous reason, the righteous way to do that is always having a conversation. It's kind of like leaving uh, your job. You can leave your job, but you have to give notice to your boss. Likewise, you probably, before you even make the decision to leave the church, you have a responsibility to have conversations with the elders, to have conversations with other members. In other words, again, to doubt your doubts. Now, if you're leaving because of work reasons, so you have to move or whatever it might be, that's a different situation. But if you're leaving because you think, I think that there's, the elders are preaching this, you have a responsibility to have a conversation with them. And so I think it involves a lot of prayer. I think it involves going to Scripture and assessing your actual motivations and desires. And then I think it has a lot of conversation with, uh, with elders and pastors and those kinds of things. That's good. Uh, so you used a helpful illustration of pulling a boulder with some yarn, and somebody asked a question, I think, which is helpful. Other than evangelism and discipleship, what are the boulders that Parkway uh, is working toward moving in our area? So let me, let me give a clarif clarification here. The, the answer to that question depends on what you mean by Parkway. It, do you mean Parkway proper, meaning the elders and the gathered assembly, or do you mean the individual people at Parkway? The role of the church corporately is different than the role of the individual Christian. Okay, so uh, I'll say it this way. When you say what other boulders are we moving other than discipleship or evangelism, that's really the only boulder Parkway proper is called to do. So the, the job of the elders is just to move the discipleship boulder, to make disciples of all nations, that's our boulder. It's the job of individual Christians, though, to move other boulders wherever God has called you. So we've got one guy that leads mission trips to Haiti. He's moving a boulder with missions when it comes to Haiti. We've got uh, another lady that works as a nurse in a pregnancy advocacy center so that she can help keep uh, abortion-minded women from having abortions, et cetera. She's moving that boulder. We have other people involved in different types of social work and helping feeding the poor or giving to the poor. They're moving that boulder. So the boulder, to use the, the continued analogy here, uh, of the Parkway Church proper is simply discipleship. Discipleship, evangelism, missions. That's our main one boulder. There's a bunch of other smaller boulders, though, that individual Christians are called to move in their local context. Okay? So realize that the, the mission of the church corporately is different than the mission of individuals within the church. 
Just like the mission of a baseball team is simply to win the game, but the mission of the pitcher is to throw good pitches, the mission of the designated hitter is to knock it out of the park, the uh, mission of the catcher is to throw people out stealing second base, and so don't confuse the role of the individual with the role of, uh, of the church. Anything on that? Uh, yeah, so I, th- I think the mission of the, of the church is discipleship, and then as an implication of that, I think there is a certain worldview that all of us should have. That's part of what we do. That's why we are very heavy on preaching and teaching here. It's because we want to shape your worldview, because your worldview then shapes everything that you do. So every one of us should be passionate about ending abortion. But that's not like the mission of Parkway Church. It's not like on our statement, uh, our mission statement, it says uh, Parkway Church exists in order to end abortion in America, right? Our, our, our uh, mission is to glorify God by making disciples. And if you are a true disciple, then you are passionate about abortion ending because you hate abortion. There's no way to read the Bible and not hate abortion. Now, for some of you, that means you're just going to pray about it. For some of you, that means you're going to give towards uh, pregnancy advocacy uh, sort of centers. For some of you, you're going to volunteer your time and all of those sorts of things. And so, in other words, by focusing on the big sort of source, then all these different little tributaries of poverty and abortion and uh, on and on we could go are going to kind of be implications uh, of that. And, uh, and everyone will have their different passions, their different desires, their different gifts, uh, and so forth. But the boulder, again, is discipleship. And that then, as an implication, has all of those other things that you might be passionate about, assuming that you should be passionate for them uh, in light of a Christian worldview. Jeff, you want to pray for us? Sure. We done? Father, we're grateful again for uh, today and the opportunity for us to gather together, grateful for the gift of your church, and, uh, and pray that you would continue to strengthen the, the hands and the hearts and the minds of the people of Parkway, that we might be uh, faithful to put our uh, hands to the plow and to labor for the sake of your kingdom, that we might make disciples and, uh, and be disciples, that we might be willing to be uh, uh, inconvenienced for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom, that we might be willing to lay down our lives and pride and, and preferences and privileges and all of these sorts of things and be uncomfortable in order to love others and to serve them, and in doing so, love and serve you. And, uh, and so we're grateful for the body and bride of your son. Pray that you would help us to be faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.